This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong I'm Logan Ziegler, Program Coordinator at JMU Civic. This is Abraham Goldberg, Director of JMU Civic and Faculty Member in the Department of Political Science. And I'm Jacqueline Dobrin, Communication Specialist here at JMU Civic. In this episode, as part of our 9-11 at 20 series, we talk with national security and terrorism legal expert Joshua Dreytel. We invite you to engage with us in the conversation on Twitter at JMU Civic and on Instagram at JMU Dukes Vote. Joshua Dreytel, thank you so much for joining us and being part of our 9-11 at 20 series. I want to start by asking specifically where you were on September 11th, 2001, and what you remember about how that day affected you. See, when I saw this question, I said, how many hours do we have? Because I live about 150 yards from the South Tower, so and that's where I was. And uh, I was in my apartment when the first plane hit. I was in my apartment when the second plane hit. I was in the courtyard waiting for a friend of mine who, interestingly enough, I had tried the embassy bombings case with. He had asked me to join him in that case a couple of years earlier. So because his office is a couple blocks away and uh, he, I was going to put him on a ferry back to New Jersey when the towers collapsed. Um, and uh, so I was in that ash cloud that you may have seen and uh, made my way south to the tip of Manhattan, the lower tip of Manhattan, around on the south side, and then up the east side, where passing under the Brooklyn Bridge, back up along what becomes the Bowery. It's St. James Place, and then it becomes the Bowery. Uh, I looked up, and there was you know, no trade center anymore. Uh, it was hard to tell when it first when, when it first collapsed. It was hard to tell that close that it was collapsing because it looked like it was just exploding floor by floor. And you couldn't tell whether it was just the heat was exploding it. You couldn't, there was so much smoke, you couldn't see that it was pancaking floor by floor. So, um, and then you couldn't see anything. I mean, it was, it was complete solid. It, it was a harrowing experience. Um, and ultimately, I mean, I wasn't even back in my apartment. My apartment was not, open for another four months, all 35 floors of my building lost every window on the east side of the building that faced the towers. Uh, I had, I had a window open, so I had, you know, soot and, and ash in my apartment. Uh, um, we, I got back like a few days later where we could get, um, uh, uh, some clothes and other things. They let us back in Sunday afternoon on the 18th. Not, I'm not, I mean, on the 16th for 15 minutes with a National Guard escort. And, you know, you go up in your apartment door has one of those X's on it, you know, from like the first responders on, you know, gas and water and whatever that it makes sure everything's off um, with a padlock that they opened. And so um, I gathered up what I could and, 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 then periodically we could come back and get materials, but I didn't get back into the apartment until the end of December, which is when it reopened the building. Um, it completely you know, devastated the neighborhood. It took a very long time to recover in many respects. Uh, you know, a lot of people left. Um, uh, it was unusual for me because I was already in the middle towards the end of the principal Al-Qaeda case tried in federal court. Still today, to this point, the embassy bombings case, which was a five-month trial that lasted from the beginning of January 2001 through, for us, the end of May 2001. Then the, there were two defendants who were death eligible, whose, whose penalty phases went into late July. Our, our sentencing was scheduled for September 26th. 
that morning. And I actually was preparing the sentencing submissions and everything at the time uh, when this occurred. And obviously there was an adjournment, but it wasn't very long. It was only till October 18th. And October 18th was, you know, still essentially the next day as far as the situation was concerned. Um, there was a period of time where I, I didn't have access to my home or my office for about four or five days. The office, fortunately, I was I was located at the time across the street from the stock exchange, and they made such a an effort to open the stock exchange by the following Monday that we had electricity in my office. So, um, uh, which was at 14 Wall Street at the time. So that building got power back. And I think Monday or Tuesday of that week, we were able to go back in. Uh, so on a personal level, it had a, a, a tremendous effect. Um, on a professional level, it had a tremendous effect too in, in, in a number of ways. And one of which was the embassy bombings case, which was a fascinating case with a lot of different elements that we'll get to in your subsequent questions, I think are, are, are more appropriate to answer there. Um, what I thought was going to be a one-off case in many respects turned out to be a, 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 a case that set the stage for a, a, a significant part of my career going forward for the last two decades. Um, and uh, so I was fortunate to have been involved in so many aspects of that case that it positioned me to be it positioned me to be one of the principal defense resources when it came to terrorism cases, when it came to national security work that involved uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, uh, Classified Information Procedures Act, SIPA, and uh, international law in a certain respect. Uh, a lot of issues that 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 case, the embassy case, in addition to you know, being a long trial <clears throat> of uh, uh, with, with a significant amount of information, just factually, was in many ways a curriculum. Uh, on a certain level. And so that was very useful going forward. And it, it, it put me in a very advantageous position to, to be in a position to do these cases, to be helpful to other lawyers, to be in a policy position on a certain level from the defense point of view. So it had a major impact both personally and in terms of career. Um, you know, and, and, and 9-11, I mean, as far as my neighborhood is concerned, you know, the, the museum and all the memorials and stuff doesn't really help people. You know, it's just it's just another reminder. Um, I think I, I don't even know how long for myself. I don't even know how long it took. And it's not even completely 100 percent gone at this point where you hear a plane and you immediately jerk your head up. So. You know, I mean, look, the, the, you know, the, I, I, when the first plane hit, I knew it was a plane. I was kind of a little bit in denial. I didn't realize it went into the Trade Center. I initially thought it may have hit the ground by the way the sound was. Um, uh, I wasn't in as, as close proximity to the North Tower, which is like three blocks away. South Tower is pretty much across down the block. Um, and But then I saw, I looked out the window and I saw all these people running south. And I thought they were running to where the plane had hit the ground because I figured they were running to help. I didn't realize they were running away from, you know, a major catastrophe. And then I saw like the trade center, just a lot of debris. So I realized there was a trade center again because I had been living there since 1990. So 1993 was already a major event for us. So, um, yeah. And then the second one was much worse because it was much closer. It was really, um, like a missile. I, th I didn't think it was even a plane. I thought it was a missile that it hit the Trade Center by the impact. It's like an earthquake. As part of the U.S. response to terrorism and expanded wartime powers, the American government stood up a detention center at Guantanamo Bay, conducted extraordinary renditions, held people without charge for almost a decade, engaged in torture as that term is understood in international law, and sent people abroad for questioning in two countries known to engage in torture. What have been the long-term consequences of these actions? And in your view, how should a small-D democratic government approach policymaking to balance protecting our country and promoting human rights? Well, my only, my only premise in the question that I'm going to dispute is the one decade, because it's been two decades now, without trial or charge for many people at Guantanamo. Um, I think uh, 
the short answer is the impact has been uh, a complete abandonment of accountability for government and other officials, and that we've seen that spread through the body politic entire. And if people have any issues with the last four years of accountability, it's it's bred in those uh, 18 years before, 17 years before. Um, uh, the the question of um, you know it, it, in in answer to the last question, I would say promote human rights as a, as opposed to, because the balancing just doesn't exist. I mean, in the sense that if you look at torture, if you look at the laws of war, if you look at the laws of of, of, of the inter- international law, international humanitarian law, those are just basically ignored at the expense of national security. That is not just a balancing, that is the only consideration in many respects that the government has promoted. And unfortunately, uh, the courts have not been particularly willing to challenge that. There have been some good opinions, but then, you know, the Supreme Court, I mean, you know, in some ways, Guantanamo litigation is the most successful litigation enterprise in history because it's won every case in the Supreme Court, yet people are still there because the government has just skirted those opinions. And the D.C. Circuit has been an impregnable barrier to relief for any detainee. And it's really at the, at the, at the mercy of the government to, to, and when I say government, I mean the executive, because Congress has abdicated, not only just abdicated, created other obstacles to releasing people. So it's up to the executive and a commitment to relocating people. And while there have been ambassadors in that position who have worked very hard, it's sporadic. And it's also for, you know, there was a guy who just got released, Nasser, who just got released, um, who was approved in 2016. And then they just eliminated the position. And he spent five years in jail for nothing. I mean, he's already released. They, 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 and then he got released like two months ago. And it's, what does he do with those five? What do we do with those five years for him? How is that a you know, small d democratic society? Let's say Minnesota arrested five people, you know, and, and, you know, there are still people like him in who are cleared by every intelligence and every law enforcement agency in the United States that, that has a say in this. They're cleared. They're, they're still there. Ten years later, they were cleared in 2009. The Obama task force did this within a year or two of, of, of being constituted. But let's say we had a half dozen people in Minnesota who were arrested in 2001 and we never charged them. And in 2009, we said, you know what? You didn't commit a crime. It's okay. You can go now. And they're still in jail. How is that tolerable under any system? And we tolerate it. And I don't understand it. And the courts tolerate it. So I think that national security as a overriding imperative in the, in the, in the perception of those who apply it has really hurt national security dramatically because the U S has lost a lot of credibility. The U S has lost a lot of, look, you know, when I started doing this work and I'll tell you, even through the, you know, the first couple of years after nine 11, before it really ripened, um, other countries were, were very trusting of the United States on a whole variety of levels, whether sharing evidence, extraditing people, all of these things. And now you look and, and you, 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 should, you look at the extradition context of the U.S. Is people just well, they don't want to send people here. They, they, you know, the U.K. is having hearings for Assange about the conditions in United States prisons. And that's all about Guantanamo. Because no one cared about the conditions in the United States prisons until Guantanamo. And those of us who've been to U.S. prisons for 20 years before Guantanamo, and then I go to Guantanamo, and the truth is, people said to me, what do you think? I said, you know, it's not as bad as ADX in some ways. You know, I got to tell you, I mean, it's, it's bad because they don't belong there, but it's not as bad in terms of conditions. And people really, you know, it's like it reflected this mirror back on the U.S. in a way that has, I mean, it's good for, you know, it's good in terms of promoting the values. But I think that for the U.S., it has just lost a tremendous amount of credibility. It's lost a lot of moral authority. And its policies are, reciprocity is another issue. How can the U.S., you know, 
complain about torture? How can it complain about violations of international law How, I, I, with a straight face? It's, you know, to me, it's, it's given people who, it's given governments that are historically authoritarian and authoritarian in structure, authoritarian in intent and authoritarian in implementation, a license to do all of these things. And a lot of people are suffering as a result of that. How did the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the United States impact the criminal justice system? But, but I would say that, you know, the, the, the whole concept of national security has infected and, and contaminated the criminal legal system to a significant extent at this point, gradually over time, but now institutionalized in many respects, whether it's secrecy, whether it's detention without trial. You know, the United States just, and this is quite extraordinary, and, and, and it passed without real comment, but for those of us who were sensitive to it, it's really quite extraordinary, which is the, the U.S. dropped a half dozen cases against uh, Chinese nationals who they claimed had uh, not fully disclosed their relationship with the Chinese military and getting research jobs in the United States. And they had charged them with false statements and a couple of other things, uh, charges, federal charges. Most of them were held without bail because they're Chinese nationals and they and they don't have roots here sufficient for a court to uh, grant them release pretrial. The cases were languishing for a year or two. Uh, About a month ago, the U.S. dismissed all the cases and the people went home and a Justice Department spokesman said it, it, it. We served our purpose anyway, because they would have that's kind of the sentence they would have done anyway if we convicted them. What? And, and no one said, what are you talking about? So this is what happened to the criminal legal system as a result of all of these principles being abandoned and exceptionalized. You know, the, what is it? The, um, you know, uh, um, forget, I'm just forgetting his name. You know, the German philosopher, the exception. He who, he who, he who owns the exception rules. Schmidt, Carl Schmidt. Basically, some I'm paraphrasing. But he who, he who defines the exception rules and the exception now is 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 the ordinary and that's the problem in the criminal legal system with respect to 911 and surveillance and fourth amendment rights and first amendment rights because you know I, I look i i appreciate that the FBI has a sensitivity to the first amendment rights of right wing protesters i really do but they didn't exist for muslims Muslims were not permitted to participate, still not in many respects, are not permitted to participate in political discussion in the United States that's critical of U.S. policy, period. You are then considered a terrorist. You are subject to an investigation. You have an informant run at you to see if you'll do something illegal. This is not, and you know, and and look, can can you imagine a group of Muslims being on social media like the January 6th? People, the protesters, and actually showing up without a presence that, that would stop them. So to me, this is a consequence of that, you know, that, that it's just, it's, a, it's, it's painful to live through and to litigate through. But, you know, and also the lack of adversary process, you know, in the FISA and then the classified SEPA, all that stuff has leached into ordinary cases in ways that's just not fair. Joshua, you've served as defense counsel in several terrorism and national security um, prosecutions, including of Sami Omar al-Husayan, who was acquitted in federal court in Idaho in 2004, Um, Wadi al-Hajj, a defendant in the United States versus Osama bin Laden, which involved the uh, August 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania um, that you referenced already. Um, You also served as the lead counsel um, in some other high-profile cases, including um, as lead and civilian counsel for David Hicks, um, who was an Australian detained at Guantanamo Bay. The cases you've been involved in have raised really important questions that we've already started discussing about the trade-offs between national security and constitutional rights and individual rights. Um, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about how you came to serve um, as counsel in these cases and how serving as counsel in these cases have impacted your thinking um, about law and about our, our legal system. And do you feel like you were going to get a fair trial uh, in any of these cases? 
uh, the first part is, you know, it's, it's pretty much a function of me not knowing how to say no. And, you know, I'm always like minding my own business and things come my way in, in a wonderful way. And um, and I just don't say no. So um, the first one was the embassy case. And my friend Sam Schmidt said, hey, this is case is too big for one lawyer and the judge is going to let me get another lawyer signed because it's all CJA, you know, court appointed, federal court appointed stuff. And um, and he said, uh there's, you know, there's room for another lawyer. And we had known each other from prior cases and our offices were across the street. And so that was even better because we could walk outside and have conversations that we didn't want to be overheard. And um, uh, so that was that one. And, I, you know, I said yes, um, after, you know, a couple of just not really much negotiation, just kind of satisfying myself as to, you know, that it wouldn't be like two years of preparation and then a plea of guilty. It looked like it was kind of be an interesting case. And he said, no, the client wants to go to trial. I said, okay. And, you know, uh, it seemed like a, a good investment at the time of, of time and effort. Um, I didn't realize really what that would mean because it turned out to be, you know, it, it turned out to be really the mother of all cases uh, in the sense of the terrorism context and, and Al Qaeda and all of that. And so, that was indispensable. The the Sami Al Hussein case was very much an outgrowth of that. I did a program in Detroit on terrorism cases that had been um, sponsored. I forget by whom, some local bar association there, and so some lawyers from Idaho approached me to talk about some of the stuff in the case, and then they asked me to 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 join the team, and that was great because they're really. I mean, there may be there may be lawyers as good that I've met, but none better, really, and and wonderful people, and it was really great, and of course, a great result for someone who merited that result. So we were very happy for that. Um, Guantanamo was it, 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 Guantanamo was a little different, but a little bit the same. Um, the the military counsel Dan Mori. Um, had, I had met him at a National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers quarterly meeting in New Orleans in the fall of 2003. In October of 2003, I was introduced to them because I'm a co-chair uh, of the amicus committee for NACDL. And they were anticipating the need for amicus help in the commissions because he, he was one of the four lawyers initially assigned to the defense office of the commissions. And he, excuse me, I don't think they knew at the time who they were going to be representing when I first met him. But anyway, so I met him. We had a nice conversation. We got along. It was it was good. Um, and the civilian counsel for Hicks at the time in the habeas was Joe Margulies. And I knew Joe because his wife, Sandra Babcock, who is um, a phenomenal capital attorney, but had also been on the embassy case in, in, as an international law expert for one of the other defendants. And, and I knew her and we got along and I'd met Joe through her. And, you know, we had a relationship in that regard, you know, Joe and I. And so I was the only person they both knew when they were looking for someone to replace Joe, because Joe realized he had a conflict when Rasul was, when the, when the Supreme Court took cert in the Rasul case in late 2003. And they said to me, they came to me and they said, we need to someone to do, a, you know, to be the conflict lawyer. Um, and I said, OK, that sounds OK. Uh, I figured it was like a one or two day engagement where I'd analyze whether Joe was conflicted out and then Joe would continue, which is what happens in 95 percent of these conflict situations. And then, you know, it would be good to help out. And then they came to me, the, the Joe really can't do it anymore. And uh, they said, you want to do it? And, you know, I, it's really, I mean, I knew in my head, you know, I said, well, look, you know, when you're 14 years old and you want to be a lawyer, this is what you really wanted to do. So what are you going to say no? So I didn't say no. <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> so we're going to get paid. He said, I don't know. We'll see if we can raise some money. And it was like, you know, but anyway, um, and that was that one. So, um, and, you know, a lot of the cases come through networks of people. Half of them are court appointed and the other half are through grapevine and other lawyers and things like that. And obviously Guantanamo, you know, created a whole other aura of this. And so, and I got to work, I've, I've got to work with ACLU, you know, and CCR and other people, ACLU I'm, I'm, uh, with the John Adams project, which 
is involved in getting civilian lawyers for high value detainees who are charged in the commissions. And that was a project that we did with NACDL and, and ACLU. And Anthony Romero was really the spearhead of that, but brought me on because of my experience. And um, so we found you know, matches for that. And, and the people from Idaho are still in the case. You know, they represent Kyle Chick How did serving as counsel in these cases affect your thinking about um, the legal system um, and and about constitutional rights? I would say the one thing is bright line torture. Um, not that I had a different feeling about it previously, but it didn't really have a context. But after a few months in the Guantanamo context, it was easy to draw a bright line on that. Um, with respect to court systems, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, Guantanamo was this completely hybrid, ridiculous, the commission system that they just, it, it's like a, 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 they, they, the Kenyans call a wildebeest a spare parts animal because it's kind of, it's kind of put together funny, you know, it's like, and it's not very attractive in that regard. And Guantanamo is like the wildebeest of legal systems because it's all these spare parts of all of these systems, the, the you know, military justice system, the, the U.S. system, um, a war crime system, and none of it really fits very well. And they took the worst of all the systems and left out the protections for the defendants. Um, and being in front of it was at first difficult in the sense that you're trying to you're trying to invoke all of these rights and authorities that give defendants an opportunity for a fair trial and a fair hearing to begin with, even in going to jury selection. We have guys who, uh, you know, they wanted to put, they had on the jury, initial jury panel, guys who operated drones from, you know, remote positions in the United States. They had a guy who had, was involved in the decision-making of who would go to Guantanamo in the first place. I don't know really how to respond to that. So, but but at some point in the process, you know, several, you know, a couple of months in, or maybe, you know, six, eight months into the process, all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, there are no rules here. So why don't, why can't I just have my wish list for what I want to do? It's a little liberating. It's, you know, it's kind of, and, and you also, you know, there are all, all these adages about, you know, the, the worst adversary is one who doesn't know what they're doing. And, 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 and not that they didn't know what they were doing, but they had no plan. So it was really difficult. You know, the whole system had no plan. So you couldn't anticipate anything. So you really had to be nimble all the time um, and imaginative. You know, try to just, you know, it, it, it actually, I learned that from the SEPA process, which is, what do I want? Why don't I just ask for it? Why don't I create a, a, a structure to get what I want? Even though it doesn't exist, nothing exists. So what's the point? Who cares? You know, so uh, we try to take advantage of that. It's hard, though, because you're always on the defensive in many respects. And I, you know, when, when you asked about fair trial, um, ironically, in Idaho, they had not heard the First Amendment had been repealed and it was successful. We got a fair trial um, in Guantanamo. We never really had the we never really anticipated we get a fair trial. We thought the prospect of a fair jury was better than a fair trial of jury of service men and women who could possibly understand combat and battle and understand that this was political in the sense of how it was being presented, that somehow these were people who were war criminals because they didn't wear a uniform, you know, something like that, you know, so, or, or a you know, uniform with an insignia. Everybody knew who everybody was, otherwise they wouldn't know who to bomb in, in, in Afghanistan. They knew who everybody was because they, they wore different. The Northern Alliance wore a different uniform than, than the Taliban. They wore different hats. They wore different, you see, you know, it's, it's easily recognizable. They just don't have an insignia, so they're war criminals. So um, these are the obstacles. But uh, so we didn't think we were going to get a fair trial in the in the in the Guantanamo commissions, which is why when the opportunity came for a negotiated disposition, it was a it was something we 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 took advantage of at the time. Um, some of the other cases, it depends, you know. It, it depends on judges, it depends on jury pools. New York is a very, very difficult jurisdiction for terrorism cases. 9-11 has just completely reoriented what you usually find among jurors in New York. And so you can't, and also if judges aren't going to inquire as to people's relationship with 9-11, and I don't care, it's 20 years later. 
I don't care if I'm trying a case tomorrow that has a terrorism aspect to it. If a judge is not going to inquire of a juror whether they have relatives who are firemen, if they have relatives who are policemen, who, who are first responders in some context, I have no idea what I'm walking into with the jury. Or, or served in Afghanistan now. We've got, you know, 20 years of war. Uh, you know, so it's it, it, it's very difficult to find a jury that's not somehow affected in an extraordinarily adverse way, whether personally or, you know, through extension of their families and close friends. Can you speak to the challenges of litigating national security and terrorism cases when you're dealing with classified information you receive in discovery? How do terrorism and national security cases differ from domestic criminal cases? And how did cases with classified information change from pre-9-11 to post, and how have defendants been affected? Um, I'd say challenge number one is that you can't share it with your client. Um, and this is part of, and, and I, I don't think it was intended this way, but it's, it's one of the unintended effects of the nature of the statute. The statute, the Classified Information Procedures Act, SIPA was, SIPA was enacted in the context of what's called gray mail, uh, uh, U.S. government officials, CIA agents in the in the in the late '70s and early '80s who were charged with crimes um, and whose defense was, well, I'm going to just have to tell about all the classified stuff that I know that that's going to exonerate me, and the government would say, no, 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 you're not. So they created a statute to try to organize how that could be done because what they were doing was dismissing cases, and that's essentially what gray mail is. That rather than have this guy testify about that, we'll just let him go. So. They decided to create the statute in 1980 to rectify that. Uh, it, it wasn't ever, it wasn't really intended for people who don't have a security clearance and aren't the people in, in in possession of the classified information. So now you have the government giving us all this discovery that we can't share with our client. We can't. There's a lot of stuff we can't share. You know, it's like you have to create certain barriers to how you know things and whether you can use them. Uh, the the process for the, the, the structure of the statute is pretty straightforward and, and, and very user-friendly in many respects, in the sense that you look at the material, you decide what you want to use, you explain the relevance to the judge, and you say, I want to use this. And then the government comes back and says, no, you can't. Uh, there's a substitution. The judge is going to decide what to do. There's some bargaining. Sometimes you do better. Sometimes you don't do better. Um, it's it's toss-up. There's a lot of strategy in that regard. Um but the 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 inability to to get at raw material is a big problem these days, and I'll explain that because that's really the answer to your last question, um, and in terms of how it's changed. Um, uh, but uh, uh, you know, you have to work in these sometimes windowless rooms for hours and hours with a computer made in you know, like a like an IBM eighty eighty six. You're all too young to know what that is. <laughs> you know, it's like the original you know, a computer with like green writing on a black screen, you know? So, uh, uh, so they're really like completely outdated equipment for the most part and difficult. And, you know, you're constantly going in there and there are all these procedures. They're in the courthouse. You can't bring stuff in basically if you're going to take it out. So, you know, if I, if I'm doing a motion to suppress, I'm trying to do everything that is not classified in my office put it on a flash drive, bring the flash drive in, plug it into the laptop. Then I have to leave the flash drive there. It's now classified because I plugged it into that computer. So if I forgot something or I don't have a site and I got to go, I got to come back, you know, next and do all these things. And it's, it's, it's cumbersome. It's, it's, it's difficult. And also just, you know, reading through material for hours a day or listening to conversations. Half of them aren't even in English. So you, you're reading transcripts. Um, it's, it's painstaking and tiring in a way that, operating in an ordinary context is not. So it takes an investment of energy and time that's different than the average case. Um, the other part is, you know, you have to create partitions in your own head. What do I know that's classified that I can't talk about with anyone, including my client? I can talk about my co-counsel who's cleared, but I can't talk about it on the phone. And I can't email him about it. I have to talk to her, uh, you know, separately in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's completely um, uh I mean, nothing's completely unexposed to surveillance, but, you know, something that's not reckless or careless in that regard. Uh, it can't be the phone. It can't be electronic communication. So I have to do that. I have to constantly keep that partition um, in in my mind. And it's 
the harder part is not over censoring is not sort of erring on the side of, well, that's probably classified. I, so you have to be very meticulous about what you know and what you don't know so that you can go where you ought to go, which is right up to the line of what's public. So when I say public, it may not be public, public, but public as in not classified, you know, part of ordinary discovery or things like that. So um, <clears throat> that's not easy. And then there's the other part of knowing stuff that, you know, just, you know, so contradictory to, 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 to the official version of things and you can't do anything about it because that's the deal we've made. And not so much, you know, it's, it, it's because it, two things. One is for the client, obviously. And the other is, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to blow it for every other lawyer who needs a clearance. They're, um, you know, I mean, they always accusing us of being the ones who can't be trusted and no defense lawyer has ever leaked a piece of classified information. And every day on the front page of the newspaper is classified information leaked by government sources for their own benefit, for whatever spin they want. So it's something I take personally in that regard. And many, and I think everyone who does this on this side takes it personally in that regard too. And um, we hew to that line very carefully um, because we understand the consequences if we don't, even if it's inadvertent, you know, like, you know, prosecutors come in and say things that I'm like, you can't say that. That's classified. Oh, <laughs> um, you know, and it happens. And it's, but um, uh, so that makes it very different than ordinary cases. Uh, the thing, you know, the, the thing that's changed is that initially, and this goes back to the embassy bombings case, which was, like I said, my first case with classified information, first case with uh, FISA. No, not my first case with Pfizer. Believe it or not, my first case with Pfizer was a Irish Republican Army case back in 1982. But um, uh, but uh, the first the first SEPA case. So so they just gave us everything, and it was a kind of a preview of what we see now, which is overproduction, so that you can't find anything um, because you you know you're looking for a needle and a stack of needles, you know, and 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 it's very hard. And the government says, hey, we gave you all the Brady material. It's 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 buried in 3,000 gigabytes of whatever, you know, it's it's a it's in a terabyte of bank records. But hey, don't worry, you'll find it. Um, but anyway, they gave it to but we appreciated that because we wanted to go through it and, and it was it was important for us to go through it rather than trust them to go through it. So I'm okay with that. Um, and we found a you know a fair amount of stuff that we were able to use in the trial in the embassy case. Nobody knows because the way it was. The judge did a very, very good job of navigating and managing that so that he gave us what we were looking for in many respects without revealing sources and methods and all these other things. So so it, it was very effective in that regard. Um, uh, but um, but the government changed in like 2004, 2005. And the, you know, the al case was the same way. We got everything. You know, we got 90 CDs of material. You know, um, I think we, we explained to the judge when we wanted like a short adjournment of the trial that, you know, it was if you if you printed it out, it was like 20 Washington monuments or something like that. You know, so give people a visceral sense of what we're talking about, because, you know, as, as over time, you know, you get in front of judges who like, you know, what's a terabyte? And I can understand that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had to learn these things too. I, you know, I hadn't been on the bench for forty years before that, but you know, so so you have to kind of know that some of these things are not accessible to people's knowledge. But uh, the 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 issue with respect to uh, discovery is they've changed. Now the government, what they do is they decide what they're going to give you a kernel of stuff. Sometimes nothing at all, and what they end up doing is dropping it in the judge's lap. For the judge to decide what's Brady, what's helpful to the defense. It's not even Brady. It's actually lower standard than Brady. You should get more than Brady. Um, you know, it's anything favorable. It doesn't have to be material. It doesn't have to be admissible, you know. And, and so so they put it in the judge's lap to do this. Now, the judge, this is the beginning of the case. This is section four of SEPA. So at the beginning of the case, the judge gets a trove of, of, of ex parte, uh, you know, information that's like raw intelligence and a variety of other things. And the judge is what's supposed to decide what my job is. You know, I mean, he doesn't even know the case. He hasn't seen, even seen motions yet. That's all, that's all the judge has is the indictment, basically. That's it. So, so how is the judge supposed to determine what's useful to me? 
So on the defense side, starting in like 2006 and 2007, we started to intervene in these and say, judge, maybe you'd want to hear from us as to what you should be looking for. We want, we want to see the material, but no one's ever been granted that right, even though it's permissive, even though the judge can say, yeah, you have to, you have to turn it over. We don't even get to see the government's brief. We don't even know the legal argument. So it's, it's just like completely, it's like pin the tail on a donkey that's not even on the wall. You know, it's like, it, it's impossible. Um, uh, and, and so the, the, but we, but we developed a system where we'd go into judges and get this audience ex parte with judges and say, all right, look, here's our defense. Uh, you know, it's six, it's, it's, it's a year before trial, but we think this is our defense. We don't really know yet. You know, it's like, my, my, my joke is, you know, when the section four is filed, which is considerably in advance of trial, my joke is, how is the judge going to know the defense when I don't even know it yet? You know, it's like, it's too early in the case. I haven't been through all the discovery. It's, it's a whole, the, the client may not be telling me everything yet. You know, it's a relationship of trust and confidence that you have to build with a client. These are all things that are factors in every case in the part of service of the client and discovery. But in this case, it's, it's, it's heightened by the fact that you're not even seeing stuff that could be useful. And so we've gone into judges and, and try to educate them and we get results. I'm not saying we get the results that we should get because I don't know, you know, because I, I, I don't know what the full range of information that they're looking at, but we get more than we would have gotten just from the government. But the real problem is that the government has, 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 has abdicated its responsibility to provide discovery and made it the judge's responsibility, which is to me wrong. And so section four has been abused in that regard, in my opinion, and judges really ought to start giving defense, clear defense attorneys, access to the material. And then we'll make our arguments as to what's relevant and what should be admissible. And, you know, I've trusted with the actual information. I don't understand what the limits are. I have the material, I have the clearance up to the level of the information itself. So it's just a tactical advantage that the government exploits in these cases. I'm curious, can you speak to that concept of trust building with your client? What was that like for you when you would meet some of the some of your clients for the first time and how would that relationship form? Oh, I feel fortunate for two reasons, one of which is I had about 20 years in the business before getting into these kinds of cases. So I had a certain level of experience in how to build a relationship with a client. <clears throat> and uh, particularly, you know, in a court-appointed case, uh, which many of these are, you are not necessarily the client's choice in some respects. So that's an additional hurdle that you have to clear to get to trust. And I, 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 I say trust and confidence because I think they're two different things. Trust is, do they, do they understand that I'm on their side? that I'm their lawyer, that this is confidential. I'm not working for the government. I'm not trying to undermine them. I'm really their only friend in many respects. You know, I'm the one person whose only obligation is their, is their uh, outcome. Um, the confidence is, do they think I know what I'm doing? You know, which is really kind of a separate question. And do they then trust, you know, do they have confidence in my decision-making, my confidence in my, in my recommendations? Do they have confidence in how I'm strategizing about the case? All these things. Um, so, and they feed off each other because then obviously there's more trust. Um, and trust is also, are you willing to do things that the client wants? And in these cases, one of the ways to build trust and confidence at an early point is almost all of these defendants have been through some sort of trauma in their confinement, whether it's because it's solitary, whether it's because they're bring, coming from another country, whether it's because of the treatment in another country, who knows what it is, whatever it is. They have issues with respect to confinement. They're often isolated. They're often denied um, access to computers or other things that ordinary inmates have. And so they, they have requests and you can, you can achieve something by getting something done in that regard, by just being persistent with the prison authorities and then if necessary with the judge. And, and that, then the client can say, okay, this person, you know, I know this person's good to their word. They said they would try to do it. They've accomplished that. Let's move on to the next thing. One of the other problems, though, is that because of these confinement issues, you spend a lot of time, an inordinate amount of time on those issues and not on the substance of the case for, for a, a very long time. And your time for these visits is precious in many respects in, in a lot of these detention centers. So, but um, 
it, it, I was fortunate in the other respect to my first client in this context was Al Haj, who was an American citizen. He was Lebanese born, very interesting background, um, but had lived in the United States, was a U.S. citizen, uh, gone back to Sudan to work for bin Laden's companies in the early, in like 1990, um, came back to the U.S. in 97, um, and then uh, was arrested in 98 after testifying in the grand jury as part of the embassy bombings case, initially perjury, but then they added the conspiracies. But he, his, his being Americanized in so many respects made it a lot easier. Um, his English was also you know, perfect. So it was, it was easy. Um, it also enabled me to uh, learn the culture of Islam in the Middle East in ways that I did not know in a very low intensity context. I didn't have to worry about being, uh, you know, because, because like, like I said, because he was so Americanized, he understood that we didn't know these things. We would talk about these things, you know, and so when I would later on meet clients who had very little contact or none at all. Sometimes their first contact with the United States was getting off a plane at Stewart Air Force Base and being taken to the MCC. Um, I was able to be better prepared for that. And, and that helps, you know, in other words, so you can ask questions about religious issues uh, as to whether they're being, you know, their religious uh, issues are being, you know, met by the prison in a way that, shows the client that, oh, you actually understand that and you know that that's important to me and things like that and family issues, you know, and, and communicating, also learning, you know, networks of people around the, around the world, lawyers and other people in other countries who can be of assistance and in getting information and contacting, you know, bridging the gap of, of, of communication with family and witnesses and other parts of the equation of, of preparing a case helped tremendously. But the clients, you know, it's, it's clients, it's, it, 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 what's interesting about the clients is even the ones who didn't have a, have any experience with the U.S. here before their cases had this somewhat, you know, aspirational idea of the U.S. justice system that was much less cynical than mine. So I was like, no, 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 it, you know, don't expect that just because you're innocent. Don't expect, it. you know, you know, it's like it doesn't work. Oh, you mean because they took the confession from you in a way that was unlawful? Don't expect it to be suppressed. We have to fight for this. If we win, it's great. But be prepared to lose because that's what happens in so many of these cases. So, you know, it, it's kind of ironic. They were kind of educating them down on a certain level about, you know, the U.S. system. But um, but that was another hurdle, actually, because they expected justice. So it was disappointment to them, to say the least. Can you speak to what the public should know about government practices in Abu Ghraib that haven't been covered in mainstream narratives? And I'm also curious, under what circumstances, if any, in your opinion, is torture justified? I'll answer the first, the last question first. None. Um, it's like I say, it's a bright line and, you know, being involved in this and, and, and part of it was doing the research in, uh, you know, to edit the torture papers with Karen Greenberg, who, whose idea it was, and, and I was kind of in the right place at the right time, um, to not say no. <laughs> and, um, uh, but the, what, what I think is, and it's, it's a product of the media itself. It's a product of the culture, of popular culture. It's a product of, of the punitive nature of how we view things is that there's a scapegoat, there's a scalp. And then the underlying problems of that are supposedly solved by the, you know, like, so that, so that Karpinski, General Karpinski gets blamed for everything at Abu Ghraib when it's a system-wide policy failure. And there are reports, there's the Mora report, there are other reports that lay that out, but she's, she suffered, no one else suffered. Miller, General Miller never suffered. The people at the Pentagon, you know, never suffered. Jaslyn Raddick suffered. No one else suffered. She was the whistleblower in the Lind. Uh, you know, uh, treatment. Um, people got judgeships who wrote torture memos. You know, people people are tenured professors at major law schools. That's where I get back to the, you know the 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 
the the the the the contaminant of the whole structure of our polity is unaccountability, and to me, it stems from all of this and the 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 Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo and black site issues are not that it was some rogue actor. It was the deliberate policy from the top down. And I understand that in every conflict and 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 sometimes, you know, in other situations, that people lose their discipline and commit these offenses. In other words, like torture. It's an offense. They commit these offenses, whether it's an interrogator, a soldier, whatever it is. I understand that that happens. And that's something that needs to be there needs to be accountability for that. But never, never has it been the policy of the United States before this that it was a policy to torture, that it was a policy to impose this kind of treatment. You know, even if you look the other way, it's one thing. But here it was like endorsed. It was it was confirmed. It was ratified. They sent it to the Office of Legal Counsel of the Justice Department to, to rubber stamp. You know, I'm not even rubber stamp. They really kind of created the invention for it, for the CIA to do it, um, and for other, you know, avenues uh, of, of this kind of treatment, um, mistreatment. So to me, the, 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 the fact that it was a system-wide commitment to something so unlawful, and that only a few people have suffered because they were chosen to be scapegoated while everyone else went on with career advancement of major proportion is to me a scandal. With 20 years now of perspective since 9-11, can you speak to how national security and terrorism cases have changed? Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think in, initially it was, it was really about the organizations in the sense that they were looking for Al-Qaeda structure, Al-Qaeda um, uh, uh, plots, Al-Qaeda um, uh, uh, communications and things like that. And over time, it became essentially just a way for informants and others to, to, to cultivate people who might not have done anything, you know, if, if not. I mean, they basically served the same purpose as recruiters, which is to take people who had, had ideated um, a certain philosophy and try to get them to act on it. Um, so, you know, Al-Aki tried to get people to come over by guilt tripping them about living in the West and enjoying all of the, uh, the, 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 the advantages of the West and their Muslim brothers are suffering at the hands of the West. And informants said the exact same thing to get people to, you know, press a button on a fake bomb. So, um, it morphed into that by the end of the first decade. And, uh, so you have very few, like really nascent plots coming from the actual organizations and 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 instead you had uh, informant and sting driven cases um you had old cases you know a lot of the travel cases were old people had been you know to other places years before and then they're prosecuted years later um so that was uh and then of course it, it changed from al-qaeda really to isis and a, like a whole slew of traveler cases basically of people who were trying to get to Syria or had come back from there. Um, and that, that dominated the landscape since probably the second Obama administration, I think. Um, um, and, you know, we'll see what happens going forward, particularly now with Afghanistan again, because it, you know, I'm, I'm cynical about it because I see it as, uh, you know, a, a, a an industry, in many respects, that has grown from this, and it's very lucrative, and it's very career advancing. So now with Afghanistan, I'm already reading, oh, it's going to be a haven for terrorists because ISIS is there, ignoring the fact that the Taliban and ISIS are absolutely opposed to each other. It's a major threat to the Taliban to have ISIS in Afghanistan uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, there's a historical relationship with al-Qaeda. We'll see what happens with that. But I mean, it, 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 it's just it's just a, it's just an exploitation of this fear that's designed to to get budgets and resources directed at something. And, you know, and, and also look at look at the, you know, the, the counterterrorism community shifted so fast to, to right wing extremism because they saw that that's where it was headed. 
because there weren't enough other cases going on. So now it's like, oh, that's where the that's where the, the the action is. That's where the punditry is. That's where all this stuff is. And I'm sorry, I'm cynical about it, but you know, I've been, I've been an insider outsider for 20 years in this. So that's my perspective. How did 9-11 and subsequent national security and terrorism cases impact how the legal system treats citizens and non-citizens convicted of terrorism offenses? Can you speak to the role of the Supreme Court, Congress, and the executive branch in interpreting, codifying, and or changing practices related to the treatment of those accused of terrorism and national security crimes? Well, I think that um, there's always been a distinction between citizens and non-citizens. This amplified it in many respects by sort of highlighting the otherness of it. Um, I think that the, the the Trumpian focus on immigration is a direct consequence of how post 9-11 evolved. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if you look at the Republican Party's platform on immigration under Reagan and Bush and Bush one, it's a it's a it's a very receptive platform for immigration. And it turned at 180 degrees by the, you know, the early 2000s. And we see the consequences of that. So um, in terms of, you know, and I'm not sure of the timing of this, but um, and it's changing now because of the closure of private prisons. But but for years, for, for a couple of decades, at least for the that aliens have who are convicted are housed in these private prisons and given far less um, uh, rights and privileges that U.S. citizens are who are convicted federally. Uh, and that's even before they get to ICE custody. So so it's, it's become ingrained in the system. It's another sort of consequence, ancillary consequence of 9-11, but it actually affects a lot more people in that regard. So um, that's an issue. Uh, 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 the And, you know, it's, it's funny also because it, it raised an issue that I'm not sure is completely dead yet, but it's, it, it hasn't been as, uh, it hasn't been as overt, at least from policy people and, you know, academics and people like that who have been promoting it. But no one ever, you know, for, for, for the first 20 years of my career, no one ever distinguished between citizens and non-citizens when it came to rights. No one ever said, oh no, they're a non-citizen. They shouldn't get this right. No one ever said that. It never came up in a case. And then it was like, oh, well, why don't we just throw them in jail and, and throw away the key? You know, and and um, like I said, we haven't seen a lot of that recently, but there was a period of time where, you know, like the whole concept of a national security court, things like that. Um, you know, it's it's it, it, it's still out there in some quarters. But right now, I don't think it has much traction given the current uh, administration. So that's a good thing. So Congress has done nothing good. <laughs> maybe they'll do something good on, on surveillance on FISA when they get around to it. Maybe letting it lapse was a good thing, but it apparently makes no practical difference. Um, but um, uh, at least the government treats it that way. So, But um, the president has basically the only authority. The courts have, have, have in large part accommodated the executive based on uh, this concept of competence. You know, it's like, you don't know what we know. So if you did know what we know, you wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So please let us do what we want. And there's a lot of that. And judges are afraid, you know, even in the ordinary context, you know, even a state judge in a, in a, in a, in a robbery case does not want to wake up one morning and find out that the guy who he gave probation to just robbed the gas station and shot the attendant. You know, he doesn't want to wake up in the morning and find that in the cover of the New York Post or whatever. Is there even a corollary in Washington for that? I don't know. In Virginia, I don't know. There's a tabloid quite like the New York Post. But anyway, but no one wants to wake up and read that. And this is the stakes here are significantly higher as, as they perceive it, because they perceive it as, oh, I'm going to let a guy go. And there's going to be another 9-11. And then look at me. I'm not going to be able to eat dinner with anybody anymore. <laughs> it's like, forget it. So. I think there's a lot of that. There's a there's a tremendous fear um, that's ingrained in making decisions that could compromise national security because that's how it's presented to judges. So the, the judiciary has, has not been as active as it should be. Some judges have been. Some cases are different than others, but I'd say by and large, no. Congress, like I said, has set up obstacles to releasing people from Guantanamo, hasn't really reformed anything in, in a way that is... Um, un unraveled 
the structure of the surveillance state and the counterterrorism state that we've seen for the last 20 years. Um, and the executive, you know, unfortunately, my, my disappointment with Obama was rather than declaim certain executive authority, it was like, you can trust me, I won't use it. Well, we saw it happen four years after, you know, so to me, that's a missed opportunity. So I, I would just want to note that we, we usually ask all of our guests what they would do to strengthen democracy, but we'd love to ask you instead, how do you define justice and what do you envision as alternatives to the current criminal legal system that we have? You know, it's interesting because I prefer the concept of justice to what people, you know, term like the rule of law, because to me, the rule of law is is very malleable. I mean, the Nuremberg laws were the law. The Muslim ban was the law. So the rule of law would say, you know, the rule of law says in, 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 in Arizona, we know what the rule of law says about voting and we know what it says in Texas. So I don't know about the rule of law so much as to rely on as, as your benchmark. Justice is a different concept. To me, justice has a lot of different, um, it, uh, has a lot of different components. One is that there is a satisfaction on the part of people involved in the system that they're being heard and that there is a recognition of what has happened. Um, part of it is proportionality. Uh, a large part of it is proportionality. A large part of it is mercy. Um, a large part of it is not zero tolerance. A large part of it is the recognition that people make mistakes and when they make mistakes. Uh, I think a large part of it is recognition of what is defined as crime, because that really is the is the is the threshold for all this. And if you, def you know, look, if you define crime as throwing somebody out of their home, as opposed to stealing a loaf of bread because your kids are hungry, we have a different world. <laughs> so, you know, um, it really comes down to that. So so justice it, it, to me is a is a sense of and, and the reason I talk about, you know, satisfaction is that I don't think victims are satisfied in this system. I know that defendants aren't satisfied. I know the participants are not really satisfied. You know, people talk about alternatives and they act like this is working, you know, and, and, and it's not working. So, um, you know, the punitive, you know, and one of the questions you had to read, the punitive, the punishment system, I just don't see it as, a, as, 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 as the optimal way to either change behavior or encourage behavior. Um, you know, judges always talk about general deterrence as part of their sentence and blah, blah, blah. And there's no data that supports that. And if you think about it logically, what motivates people to commit crimes is not some calculus about whether it's going to be a year or two years on their sentence. Um, historically, philosophically, going back centuries, it's about the certainty of prosecution and not the length of the sentence. Um, and uh, uh, the the system also doesn't accommodate trauma, for want of a better word, in a way that it needs to. It's, it's improving a little bit, uh, somewhat grudgingly in some ways. Uh, but, you know, and, and a lot of that is the result of a phenomenal capital bar, you know, that has worked on death penalty cases for decades and incorporated that into the ordinary practice of criminal defense law. Because when you get clients who commit a crime and you're doing a pre-sentence investigation with the probation officer and they say, what was your background? Like, what was your, you know, your, your relationship? And they go, oh, it was all right. And then you probe a little further, you ask a question or two and you find out that, you know, they've been abused at four different foster homes sexually. They, they were, you know, that the idea of discipline was putting them on the stove. You know, you come to a different understanding of, where people come from and how they view. And also when you look at people's alternatives, their, 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 their horizons. So that I've had many clients, you know, say to me that, you know, a, a year of good, of a good, of a, of a good life, you know, knowing that someday you're going to get caught and it's going to be over is better than the alternative of just like, you know, nothing being, you know, just having no opportunity anywhere. 
and being treated like a third class citizen. So um, you have to come with an understanding of that. And, and to me, that's and also, you know, you know, I have a particular position about policing and, you know, if, you know, if, if you think it's not you, but if society thinks that it's more productive to add money to policing rather than look at the question, look at the issues that require policing in the first place, it's a no brainer. But that's only if you want to get people to educated opportunity and then to share power with them. And if you don't want that, you spend the money on policing. Because then you don't correct the underlying problems. You just stay safe in some way or safer that you think you're safer. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin. JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.